After the Virus, Episode 16. The scene of the encounter with the Zeeks is Drake's Bad Guest Ranch, in what was originally known as Hot Springs Valley. A resort since around 1900, it became a part of Lassen Volcanic National Park in 1958. Just downstream from Drakesbad is the beautiful Warner Valley, with its large, wet meadows owned by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Eventually, Warner Creek flows into the Feather River, which enters Lake Almanor through the mountain community of Chester. As episode 15 wrapped up, the Zeeks had started tearing out the floorboards above their heads, and Will, Hope, and Tom were forced to move quickly. Suddenly, it began sounding as though they were tearing down the building. We could hear boards creaking as they were torn off the wall. Then, without warning, they began ripping out the flooring above our heads. When they managed to break through a floorboard, we knew we had to act quickly. Tom opened a valve on a propane bottle and grabbed a gallon gas can which he poured on the remaining supplies. We grabbed our packs and pushed out the half door we had come in and Tom threw a lit match behind us as we squished out the door. The basement exploded in flame behind us as a large whoosh tossed us forward. We could hear the Zeke screaming frantically inside the building as we hid behind a derelict truck and readied our weapons. As the Zeeks began pouring out the front door, armed with all kinds of makeshift weapons, Will and Tom took shots with the rifle and pistol, and I launched a few arrows. The Zeeks had no idea where we were shooting from and panicked, running back into the burning lodge. We heard coughing and wailing, and the last few remaining individuals crawled back out the front door where they were easy targets. As the old building became fully engulfed, we encountered no more living Zeeks. We sat and watched the historic building burn until it was a smoldering pile. With the blackened timbers still crackling, we moved to examine the bodies. Rolling the first one over, we were revolted by the deformed facial features. Teeth sticking straight out in all angles, a cleft palate, a thick, heavy brow and tufts of hair covering a head shaped like a deflated melon. At the next body, Tom nudged it over with his foot. As he did, the body spasmed into action, swinging up and down with a heavy meat cleaver, catching Tom squarely in the crotch. Tom screamed and fell while at the same instant, Will buried the toe of his boot into the temple of the Zeke, who went back down without another sound. Will and I went to Tom, who was now curled up in the fetal position as the blood gushed from his groin. Shit. Artery, whispered Will. We attempted to put pressure on Tom's gash, but as we futilely tried to stem the gushing blood, we watched him turn white, then stop breathing. We were in shock. Our short-lived threesome was over after only days, a reminder of how precarious our situation is. Just the two of us again. October 1st. 
After picking through the charred remains of the lodge and finding nothing usable, and inheriting Tom's few possessions, most importantly his gun and ammo, we returned to our tree stump cache, ate our fill, then added the rest to our already heavy packs. Will said there were miles of meadows below us in the Warner Valley, so we headed down the Warner Creek until the canyon opened up into a wide, marshy glen. Hopeful that we had eliminated the threat of the Zeeks, we found a shady patch of timber on the edge of the meadow and set up a temporary camp. Warner Creek was choked full with tiny trout, so we caught many and just swallowed them whole as not to start a fire in our new locale. October 18th. Warner Valley has been good to us. In addition to the trout, there is a healthy population of blue grouse who have been cooperative targets for my arrows. The mammal population here was either less affected by the disease we observed in Mill Creek, or were recovering more quickly. We were able to harvest a respectable number of chipmunks, squirrels, rabbits, and even a fat doe. We have been so busy hunting, trapping, tanning hides, and practicing my skills that I have been too preoccupied to write, until today, when I suddenly noticed how much the season is rapidly changing. Afternoon thunderstorms have been a regular occurrence, but this afternoon, the wind turned chilly, and instead of rain, some very petite flakes of snow floated by. It was not enough to stick, and turn to water as soon as it touched my skin. I guess we should start thinking about winter. October 19th. If yesterday's reminder wasn't enough, this morning's inch of white powder definitely made its point. Though it's only October, we think, Will says it's not too early to start preparing for the cold months ahead. November 10th. The weather warmed up again with balmy Indian summer breezes, and we spent the last couple of weeks busily stitching our animal skins into shawls and ponchos, and using the mild weather to mend our boots and other clothing. We refurbished our tools as best we could. Will shot a big bear, and we have used the fat to waterproof everything we have, from packs to shoes. The bear meat is strong but not unpleasant, and the nights are cold enough now that it doesn't spoil. We smoke it, but we have no salt to salt it. We eat a lot of it every day for a while. The pelt is large enough to make a vest for Will and a jacket for me, with enough rawhide left to make two pairs of snowshoes. November 12th. The sky was purple all morning, and by noon it began snowing large, fluffy snowflakes. Soon it was snowing so hard we couldn't see the creek just 30 feet away. We started a large, warm fire at the opening of a small lean-to we had constructed and spent the afternoon recounting our many adventures, eating bear meat and enjoying the fire's warmth. With all of our layers and sleeping bags, we slept soundly to the hushed whisper of falling snow. November 13th. I awoke slowly to a silence I had never experienced before. After a time, I became aware of the sound of my heart beating than the low, steady pattern of Will's breathing. When I finally opened up my eyes, the world was a different place. With nearly two feet of powdery snow on the ground and more still falling, we quickly found out that our new snowshoes were a necessity. Though our lean-to had kept the snow off of us, 
it was clear that it was not a sustainable option for winter. In reality, while we had readied our gear, food supplies, and garments for winter, we had not consciously decided where we would be spending it. Game had been plentiful throughout the fall, but would there still be enough game in winter? It felt safe here. We hadn't seen or heard another human in weeks. But did we want to spend this entire winter in this remote valley? Or did we want to move down slope, where winter would not be as extreme but the chance of encountering violence was increased? We decided to search for a deserted cabin to protect us from the worst weather. We had accumulated more stuff over the last few weeks, more than we could comfortably carry on our backs through the heavy snow. So we built a travoy of sorts, with narrow boards of split wood on the ends of the poles that allowed it to more or less ski behind us. In this way, we worked our way down the canyon. Farther down the valley, we passed many modest cabins, some clearly damaged or looted. None felt like quite the place we wanted to overwinter, but as nightfall was nearer, we took shelter in one that was set back against the canyon wall. Because of the close proximity of other cabins, we decided not to have a fire. It was actually colder inside the cabin than it was in our lean-to. November 14th. It was a long and chilly night, and we awoke to what seemed like another half-foot of snow. We found some canned soup in the cabin, and there was still propane in the tank, so we had it hot for breakfast, then started again down the canyon. By afternoon, we had come to the outskirts of what had once been the small community center of Chester on the shore of Lake Almanor. From the first home site on the edge of town, clear to the shore and around the perimeter of the lake, each and every dwelling had been burned, some down to a snow-covered pile of rubble, others featuring the skeletal remains of stem walls, framing and rock fireplaces. From the look of it, the fire had occurred months earlier, perhaps an extension of the fire that had chased us out of Deer Creek Canyon last summer. The devastation was chilling. Here we were, our first town in six months, and it was literally destroyed. We had been wordlessly hoping to find a comfortable home in which to spend the winter here. But as we wandered the empty streets, we could not find a single building standing. We decided to walk the lake's edge in the hopes of finding a habitable structure. As it was getting near to evening, we decided to erect a quick lean-to and a willow patch along a creek entering the lake. It began snowing again as we made a small fire. The only calming feature of this place is the chattering of thousands of ducks and geese nearby on the water and flapping overhead. November 15th. Woke up early and made some coffee we had taken from the last cabin to wake up. Then, took down the camp and again followed the shore looking for shelter. Soon, we came to an area of what must have been expensive lakefront homes, as the rubble piles were much larger and were surrounded by the hulks of what were once expensive cars. From a vantage point on a rocky point thrust out into the lake, we had a pretty complete view of the entire shoreline, and we could see not a single building standing. Suddenly, Will chuckled and pointed out to the water and said, Look! Houseboats! Sure enough, there were not one, but three houseboats in the middle of the lake. 
looking as though they had randomly drifted into one another. Aside from some superficial damage, they appear to be fine. If we can find a way out to them, they might make decent shelter, Will said. They seem awfully exposed, I replied. We haven't seen an aircraft in months, but you're right. We should probably run one up close to shore, in case we need to make a quick getaway, either farther into the water or onto shore. First, we need to figure out how to get out there. We set about looking for a way to get out to the boats. We found many small motorboats along the shore, most either burned or wrecked. Eventually, we came upon a place that had been a water sports rental business, where we found small, partially melted, but usable canoes. We decided to paddle out and inspect the houseboats before committing to shipping over all of our goods. Because of Will's hand, I did most of the paddling while he used the paddle as the rudder for steering. The trip went relatively smoothly, despite a slight list because of the canoe's slightly distorted shape. The feeling of being out in the wide open was uneasy for me, and it was the first time we had been so exposed in months. When we got there, we boarded the first boat. The decks were slick with about a foot of snow. The sliding glass door was locked, and we could clearly see the interior was complete with a couch, chairs, a table, kitchen, etc. Where the boats touched, we hopped over to the second and third boats, finding each in roughly similar condition. The only real damage was the broken railing, and metal roof overhangs where the boat had collided. Getting the boats apart appeared to be as simple as bending or removing the mangled railings. We decided that the smallest of the three boats would serve us best. Easiest to move, easiest to keep warm, etc. We located a spare set of keys to the smallest boat. If we were to start the motor, we were sure that it could be heard for miles, so we decided that once we had detached it from the other boats, we would tow it with the canoe. Although this might have been the safest choice, it was definitely the hardest. I helped Will lash the paddle handle to his stump, and between the two of us, it took us about an hour and a half of continuous rowing to get the boat to where we had left our supplies. It was dark when we finally anchored it in about three to four feet of water and shuttled our provisions over from the shore. By the time we were finished, we were so tired we barely had the strength to eat, but cracked a few cans of fruit, then collapsed. Will on the sofa and me on the bed, wrapped in every blanket we could find. November 16th. We had no time yesterday to inventory what came with our boat. We were pleasantly surprised to find lots of canned goods, towels, blankets, and pillows. There were also fishing poles, tackle, and perhaps best of all, a full 10-gallon tank of propane. Spent the day clearing snow, Cleaning, organizing, planning, and preparing for a quick evacuation if necessary. We cashed an emergency supply of items on shore, as well as on the boat so we would not be left without provisions on either land or water. Though constantly on alert for the presence of others, the day was strangely relaxing. November 17th. Next on a list. Salvage any additional food and supplies available. We made numerous canoe trips out to the remaining two houseboats to retrieve any and all foodstuffs and usable tools. There was not a lot, but with no way of knowing how long we would be here, everything has value. 
There were a few motorboats adrift on the lake as well. We paddled to them and took what we could find, mostly tools. Interestingly, we found a marine radio on one of the boats. This evening, while checking it out, we attached it to the houseboat's battery. On one of the channels, we could barely make out what sounded like a live conversation in Chinese. Knowing someone was alive and capable of seemingly intelligent conversation was both thrilling and chilling. Thanks again for the pleasure of your company. Don't forget to order your own copy of the ebook or paperback at Amazon.com.